Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Susanna Patton, and I am a research fellow in the Foreign Policy and Defence Program here at the United States Studies Centre. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm very pleased to be hosting today's webinar to launch Stephen Kirshner's new report, A Geoeconomic Alliance, The Potential and Limits of Economic Statecraft. To discuss his report, Stephen is joined by Christine McDaniel, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Centre, and Benjamin Herskovich, a research fellow at the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance. To kick things off, I'll ask Stephen to briefly introduce the main findings and recommendations from his report before we hear from Christine and Ben. We will be opening it up for audience Q&A, so please submit your questions using the Q&A function at any time. Um, I'll turn it over to you, Stephen. Thank you very much, Susanna. Uh, I think it might be helpful to start off by defining what we mean by geoeconomics, because the term can be used in a number of different ways. We can think of geoeconomics as framing the issues that arise at the intersection of international economics and international relations. And in particular, how we might reconcile the sometimes competing demands of economic welfare and national security. Geoeconomics or economic statecraft is also used more narrowly to describe the use of specific economic policy instruments to further foreign policy or security objectives. Uh, although as I noted in my report, almost any economic policy instrument can potentially be employed in this way. And economic policy will often have unintended or incidental uh, consequences for national security. There's a tendency in some of the discourse around geoeconomics to think of it as referring to a situation in which national security considerations essentially trump economic considerations. And that is indeed sometimes the case. But I think the successful application of economic statecraft really lies in balancing those two things. Economists, of course, are very familiar with the concept of trade-offs, uh, but trading off economic welfare and national security, unfortunately, lends itself very easily to binary outcomes because it's inherently difficult to incorporate national security into the economists' uh, familiar expected value frame. There's nothing new about uh, geoeconomics. We find, uh, we find examples of geoeconomic thinking in classical political economy. Uh, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, although it's now best known to us uh, for its critique of mercantilism, uh, but in that work, Smith explicitly subordinates uh, considerations of economic welfare to national security when he defends restrictions on commerce in the context of Anglo-Dutch strategic rivalry. If we fast forward to the early 1970s, there's a rediscovery of geoeconomics on the part of the international relations discipline that arises from the breakup of the Bretton Woods system and fixed exchange rates which had a very pronounced impact on transatlantic diplomatic relations at the time. But you can't understand those diplomatic frictions without an understanding of international finance. And so this prompted Susan Strange in a famous essay in 1970 to observe that the international relations and economics disciplines 
uh, were both guilty of talking past each other and gave birth to international political economy as a subfield of international relations. There is another surge of interest in geoeconomics at the end of the Cold War and the unipolar moment for the United States when Edward Lutwak pens his uh, article for the national interest in 1990, where he argued that since the US can no longer be directly challenged militarily, then strategic competition will instead take place increasingly uh, in the economic domain. It's interesting to look back at some of the predictions made in the early 1990s and subsequently uh, based on geo. In particular, it was uh, often thought that um, uh, Japan's use of strategic industry and trade policy would lead to its economic ascendancy over the United States. And in the more, more extreme version that conflicting mercantilist interests on the part of the US and Japan would even compel them into military conflict. In the event those predictions coincided with the faltering of the Japanese economy in the early 1990s, partly on the back of those very same policies. And the US has in fact spent much of the last 30 years encouraging Japan to get its economic house in order uh, in order to support growth in the world economy. Similar predictions were made for Europe where it was assumed that the Eurozone project, which was motivated as much by geopolitics as by economics, uh, would lead to Europe's economic ascendancy and give it much greater weight in the international system. Uh, when in fact it, it sowed the seeds of economic stagnation and intra-European political conflict. Uh, I should note that these predictions are not just attributable to geoeconomic thinking. If you go back and look at US economic textbooks from the 1950s, really all the way through to the early 1980s, you'll find predictions that the Soviet Union would eclipse the US economically because of its high rates of state-led saving uh, and investment spending. So the history of geoeconomic thought is littered with failed predictions of relative US decline. Uh, and I think it's important that we interrogate the assumptions that led to some of those misplaced predictions. So this of course brings us to the geoeconomic elephant in the room, which is US-China strategic rivalry. Uh, and the role of economic statecraft in that rivalry. Uh, China is a notable practitioner of economic statecraft, as Australia has found recently, where we have been on the receiving end of a campaign of economic coercion, uh, through which China has sought to signal its dissatisfaction with the policy positions of the Australian government. More broadly, there is a tendency to view China's domestic industry and trade policy uh, its foreign investment, overseas aid, and its pursuit of bilateral and regional trade agreements as being fused as part of a grand geoeconomic strategy aimed at displacing the influence of the United States. At the same time, it is very easy to point to recent failures of US economic diplomacy under the Obama, uh, Trump, Biden administrations uh, to conclude that the US is losing in the international economic dimension to strategic competition with China. In my report, I frame China's interest in geoeconomics a little differently. I argue that China uses geoeconomic policy instruments in part because it's constrained uh, in its use of other policy instruments. 
you cannot yet confront the US or its allies uh, militarily with any certainty of success. Uh, it lacks significant friends and allies in the international system. So its ability to work cooperatively with other countries in promoting its geopolitical interests is constrained. And so its growing economic influence becomes its go-to policy instrument, uh, whether in the form of economic inducements uh, or economic punishment. Putting aside for the moment, China's broader use of economic statecraft, I think it's, Use, uh, its use of economic coercion in particular has been ineffective in furthering its geopolitical objectives. You can certainly point to instances where countries have offered up minor diplomatic and other concessions uh, in response to economic coercion. But mostly it has led to a hardening of positions with respect to China and led countries in the Indo-Pacific region to strengthen their cooperation with the US. That has certainly been the case in Australia where public sentiment towards China has collapsed. And this has made it very easy for the Australian government to adopt some of the policy positions that it has. It's also the case that China's economic coercion campaign has imposed costs on its own economy. The most dramatic example of which is the massive energy price shock being experienced by China at this time which has been exacerbated by its ban on Australian coal imports uh, to the extent that Australian coal shipments are now being quietly unloaded in an effort to ameliorate the shock. Uh, Australian exporters have been very successful in finding new markets for exports that previously went to China, which has limited its economic impact on Australia, uh, even at the industry and firm level. So the good news is that China's economic statecraft with respect to Australia has mostly been ineffective. Uh, the bad news is that China doesn't seem to care, which is to say it appears willing to incur substantial economic costs in order to signal its foreign policy positions. This is perhaps not surprising because the CCP is doing much the same thing domestically with its politically motivated campaigns against some of its domestic firms and industries. The problem here, of course, is that if the CCP is willing to destroy the equity capital of some Chinese firms to make a domestic political point, then it should be no surprise that it's prepared to do the same thing to us. Uh, indeed, some of the Australian abattoirs subject to China's uh, trade restrictions actually have Chinese equity participation. This behavior should raise some major questions about the future of the Chinese economy. The success China has enjoyed is largely attributable to previous market-oriented reforms, uh, but China has increasingly turned its back on reform and is now prioritizing state control over economic growth uh, and economic self-sufficiency over international connectedness. While this will likely see an intensification of China's use of economic statecraft, it also raises serious questions about China's future growth prospects. Uh, in particular, uh, whether its economy will have the same gravitational pull that is the foundation of its uh, geoeconomic influence. So where does this leave the US and its economic statecraft? Uh, historically, the US has successfully coupled its alliance network with its support for free and open international trade 
in what I think has been a winning formula for both economic and geopolitical influence. I think the cracks that have emerged in that particular formula are well known. Uh, and China's use of economic statecraft certainly complicates that formula. Uh, but I don't think it fundamentally changes. The US can still use its traditional uh, leadership role in driving trade expansion among allies to successfully prosecute its strategic competition with China, uh, rather than resorting to trade restrictions aimed at China or the rest of the world. The main risk for the US and for Australia as a US ally is that a more inwardly focused US disconnects from the international economic order that it previously fostered, uh, more so through neglect than any explicit policy decisions to disengage. For Australian policymakers, I think the implication is that just as we've devoted a lot of effort to keeping the US engaged in the region uh, militarily and diplomatically, we also need to work to keep the US engaged uh, economically. But that's a much tougher sell to US policymakers because it potentially cuts across so many competing domestic policy interests uh, that I think loom very large for the Biden administration in particular. Reframing issues such as US membership of CPTPP in terms of strategic competition with China uh, would likely resonate more strongly in Washington at this time than arguments uh, of gains from trade, for example. So with those uh, broad framing remarks, I'll hand it back to you, Suzanne. Thank you very much, Stephen. So I'll now invite Christine to give your thoughts on Stephen's report and the issues that he's put on the table. Thank you, Susanna, and thank you, Stephen. Uh, thank you to the United States Studies Center for hosting this event, and, uh, and thank you, Stephen, for this really nice report. Uh, it's so nice to be here with you all and with Ben um, and the others, and uh, look really look forward to hearing some of the uh, questions from the participants uh, after these remarks. Um, so I've, I have a few things. One, so as a trade economist, you know, we don't, who's mostly worked in government, you know, we don't, trade economists don't usually get asked to comment on uh, geopolitical uh, issues very often, at least not, not until recently. Um, but, uh, but you know, you still, even when you do try to wade in that territory, you know, at least for me, I still find myself going back to, uh, you know, just e economics 101, and that can really help reorient it, reorient the conversation. Um, you know, and when I think of um, the China shock, I almost think that it, you know, now it just seems to be almost twofold, right? It was like a one-two punch. One was just this huge shifting out of the supply curve. Right, literally just with China, even before they jo joined the WTO, um, but then especially uh, in the throughout the 2000s, uh, really, a, you know, owing to its sheer size um, and the time that it kind of came online in the global economy, it just literally shifted the supply curve of, of so many goods um, out. Uh, and you know, I, it, the United States and I would argue other countries uh, severely underestimated those adjustment costs and and. Uh, and now, you know, those adjustment costs have really materialized for the United States, at least uh, politically, over the past uh, five, five or eight years. But um, but then the the second um, punch of that, the, the the two part of the punch of that of the China shock, I think, is the this realization that the Chinese Communist Party is not uh, at all. Um, 
committed to uh, many of the principles that China uh, appeared to be and said to be committed to during the recession. So it's the economic and the geopolitical, and those things combined, um, you know, really make for a very different discussion today on on trade relations than um, you know we we were having 15 years ago when it was just that first part of the of the China shock. Uh, so that's one thing I wanted to uh, start off with. Um, and then you're also noting, uh, so Stephen, in Stephen's paper, he talks about a lot about um, multi the multilateral approach, rightly so, you know, and this importance of the collective response. Uh, and, you know, but for the, but that collective response, um, as, a, as important as it is, the, the pillars of that, um, of that collective, uh, and, and the, the pillar relationships of that collective, including the United States and Australia relationship, namely, uh, you know, are, are, are holding it all together, right? And so you really need both, right? You need the, the pillars, uh, the relationship between the pillars, and then the, um, the other parts of that relationship. Um, and that's one thing that Stephen, I think, uh, points out really well in his piece about the importance of these other, you know, first have the pillars get it get it right in terms of you know, get straight about what they want, what they want to see, their approach, and then bring in the others uh, for a collective response. You know, and a response that's going to suit everybody. Um, the um, one thing we talk a lot about at the Mercatus Center at, at at George Mason University, you know, we, uh, my colleague Wei Feng and I talk a lot about international freedom. You know, what does that really mean? Um, you know, it's, well, it means a lot of things, economic freedom, you know, literally just the ability to, to buy from who you want to buy from and to sell to whoever wants to buy from you. Um, and, you know, and so when China was acceding to the WTO, you know, um, nearly all economists um, were all in favor of that because, um, you know, not only, of course, market access for, for, for U.S. exporters, but the real, the real reason was just because we could, um, you know, increase, um, you know, in, increase the, the size of the global economy with China's um, size and, and very stark differences in, in relative factor prices. By that, I mean wages and rental rates and really all, all factor input prices, such a vast difference there. There are huge gains from trade. And for um, those of you who've taken trade economics, you know, let's go back to trade econ, you know, um, Ricardo, um, Hector Lean, uh, you know, but any, you know, any major main trade model, the, the bigger the difference between relative factor prices and the bigger the difference between relative goods prices, you know, before trade liberalization, the bigger the gains from trade. So when China ceded to the WTO, there were huge gains, huge potential gains to be had there. And indeed, huge gains were had. Um, but then of course, we also had the adjustment cost. Now, as we see rising tariffs and other policy instrument tools that are coming up, to, um, to kind of make trade a little costlier uh, for, um, for firms that want to do business in China. You know, those gains, they're not going to go away, but they are probably going to diminish to some extent. Um, and we're, we're already seeing it, uh, not only with the tariffs, uh, but also just with companies just like literally pulling out of China. Microsoft's LinkedIn announcement recently that it was no longer you know, commercially viable for them to pursue um, the, you know, the Chinese marketplace. 
uh, you know, I think was very interesting, especially given that, you know, one of the key comparative advantages for US firms is on the tech and services side uh, and for a company like Microsoft to say, you know, well, here's, here's our limit to that. Um, and, you know, I, I thought that was quite illustrative. Um, and then also um, my final point before I turn it over to Ben is that uh, also on Stephen's point about the, um, the importance of our multilateral institutions and how both Australia and the United States, uh, you know, founding, founding um, uh, members of, um, of these key institutions. Now, if you go back to um, the transcript, go back to the transcript of the Bretton Woods Conference, right? And a couple of things pop out um, there, at least to me, that um, the members had, they shared two key goals, right? One was to rebuild from the war, right? They had just literally, you know, they were lived through one of the costliest, bloodiest wars of their lifetime and of their, um, of their, of their, you know, their um, relative lifetime as well. But so, so rebuild from the war and number two, make it so costly that, that the world would never have to go through that again. And it was that second goal that led to the GATT, which led to, of course, the WTO and here we are now. So all this talk about, you know, how trade is great for development and, and um, poverty alleviation and all this, Yes, of course it is, but but let's not kid ourselves, right? I mean, if you really want to, um, we really want to go back and, and figure out why did we do this in the first place? It was, you know, you, you've got to go back to the Bretton Woods Conference transcripts and read what the the founding participants, founding members were saying then. And China was not really China was there, but they were not an active participant, right? So they don't they don't necessarily you don't really get a sense that they really shared in those key principles and goals that led to the gap in the WTO. And I think we need to keep that in mind, um, you know, moving forward when we start talking about reforming the WTO, um, and um, and and really, you know, that's a that's a sobering thought to really internalize that. But I think we all owe it to ourselves to to um, to, to come to that realization. Um, because our international institutions, uh, you know, are struggling, and and um, you know, I recently asked you, are our international institutions failing, or are we failing them? Right, and you can just see it. The World Health Organization, you know, incapable of doing a, a, a solid inquiry into COVID. Uh, the World Bank recently got called out for data irregularities. You know, some arm twisting by one of its members, China, and by the some bureaucrats. Um, allegedly maybe giving into some of that. Um, the, um, and then of course the World Trade Organization, uh, incapable of getting members to come to some agreement on, you know, not using forced labor for overfishing our seas, right? Um, I mean, these are all, um, you know, but then you look in the mirror and you realize that our institutions are really just made up of us, the members. And so we ourselves have to, I think, ask, what do we want out of these institutions moving forward um, and have a, you know, and I don't know if the world is ready to have that hard discussion yet, but that is, I think those, that is a question that um, the members need to ask themselves um, before they have a serious rethink of building these, rebuilding these institutions. And I do think that's something that Australia and the United States should do together. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Christine. I'll now turn it over to Ben for your for your comments and thoughts on the issues that we're discussing. Thank you very much, Susanna. And just a, a thank you to Stephen for the paper. It's a great piece and a really useful conversation starter for this really important debate that we're having in Australia and internationally. And also thank you to the USSC for hosting this event. It's excellent to be among old colleagues and new friends for this. So I really like the framing of Stephen's paper in terms of opportunities, but also limitations. And I think that allows for a really nuanced and balanced assessment of the possible role of geoeconomic policy within an alliance construct, because inevitably there are opportunities, but also a whole host of limitations that come to bear if we're seeking to push forward with that goal of situating geoeconomics within an alliance construct. And I also really liked, uh, as a recovering philosopher, a lot of the detours into intellectual history and political and economic theory in the paper. I think that's really useful in getting a sense of where we are right now and why we are where we are right now, because a lot of these debates about geoeconomic policy tend to be quite ahistorical, but clearly all of these issues associated with the appropriate role for economic policy in statecraft have a very long genesis and the roots of that reach back centuries in many cases. I'll try and do a little bit on the opportunity side, but regrettably, I have to say that my remarks are primarily focused on this side of limitations of geoeconomic policy within an alliance construct. But hopefully that will be a good conversation starter and can lead to ongoing debate and discussion about all of these issues. And before I get into it, I'll just also say that as a kind of caveat, my comments and reactions are kind of shaped by my overwhelming focus on the Australia-China relationship and China's economic statecraft within that relationship. And so I'm, I'm kind of reacting to this from the point of view of an Australian policymaker or from the point of view of Australians in general, when it comes to these broader geoeconomic issues and the role they may or may not play within the Australia-US alliance and the broader bilateral relationship with the United States. So I think for me, I'll start with what I think is important in terms of geoeconomics and the alliance of late, and that's a kind of limited defense of the alliance in the current context of China's economic coercion of Australia. So there are numerous voices in the Australian debate that look at some key data points, the fact that US exporters, in some cases, for example, are benefiting at Australia's expense as a result of Australian exporters having been shut out of the Chinese market. And many skeptical and critical voices in Australia would take that as being evidence that the alliance is somehow not fit for purpose in the current context and that the United States is on some level an untrustworthy partner in all of this and that though the Secretary of State and other senior US officials will say the right things in terms of diplomatically supporting Australia, substantively when Australia is up against the wall confronting China's economic coercion, there is very little follow through. And my response to that, and here's my kind of limited defense of the alliance, is that this is kind of to misunderstand the purpose of the alliance. And I'm less concerned about this in that I think there are a whole host of really plausible reasons and quite compelling reasons as to why the United States is not doing much more than voicing strong diplomatic support for Australia in the context of China's economic coercion. And some of those things are really obvious things like the fact that there is this broad preference for free trade in both Washington and Canberra and 
No one expects the US Secretary of State or other senior US officials to be directing Californian winemakers to benefit Australian winemakers because of uh, China's economic coercion. This is a point that is often made and I think it bears repeating. And then there's this general point about the extent of the economic costs associated with the United States uh, putting economic weight behind its expression of solidarity for Australia and reorganizing its exports for the sake of not benefiting from Australia being cut out of the Chinese market. And that's a huge economic impost and one that I don't think Australia ought to realistically expect the United States to forego, given that both Australia and the United States are broadly in favor of the free movement of goods and services. And that should continue, notwithstanding the current politically motivated instances of economic coercion from China. But herein ends my limited defense of the alliance in the context of geoeconomic policy. I think part of the reason, and perhaps the most important part of the reason why we haven't seen Washington step up much further beyond diplomatic statements and possible involvement in WTO cases in defense of Australia when it's staring down China's economic coercion is because there is a huge gulf between Washington and Canberra's approach to China's economic statecraft, but also China policy more broadly. And I think therein lies one of the key limitations of the US-Australia relationship and the alliance specifically in trying to deal with the age of geoeconomics, so to speak, broadly speaking, but then also that specific challenge of China's economic statecraft and China's economic coercion. So it strikes me that, and this is kind of my second big point, I don't think that anyone should expect the alliance or the US-Australia relationship more broadly to be at the forefront of responses to economic coercion from China. And a big part of that is that the United States and Australia have ultimately different geoeconomic goals and strategies towards China. Many people on the call today, and I'm sure the other panelists will know much, much more about this than me, but it strikes me that we're still in this state of flux in DC as to the preferred approach to China in trade terms, but also geostrategically. And by extension, the preferred approach to a whole host of critical trade policy issues, whether it's free trade agreements or the WTO in general, or the rules-based trading system as a whole to go really macro and really normative. We're still in the process of finding our feet there. There are statements from the Commerce Secretary or the USTR, which suggest kind of more of a containment, coercive, hard-edged approach to China, but then other statements which indicate more of an openness to trade and wanting to roll back some of the Trump era uh, economic protectionism. And it's, it strikes me still quite unclear as to where we're going there. But even if DC is still in flux, so to speak, on these big trade economic statecraft issues, there is, I think very obviously, a huge cleavage between the Australian approach and the American approach on these issues, broadly speaking, even if the Biden administration goes back from some of the Trump era policies and becomes more like previous US administrations. And it comes through in a lot of the high level statements from Australian political leaders and ministers where Australia says really openly that we welcome China's economic development, support its ongoing growth and seek mutually beneficial economic cooperation with China where possible. And this is kind of the regular statement from Australian leaders and uh, ministers. And it, it contrasts really dramatically with the way in which much of the language coming out of Washington is focused on 
if not constraining China's economic growth and technological development, at least uh, competing with it and maintaining primacy. And it's a very different set of goals. And as a result of that, unsurprisingly, a very different set of uh, geoeconomic policies towards China that flow from that. And I think that makes coordinating on geoeconomic policies very hard for Canberra and Washington, not just in terms of the optics, in terms of the messaging, because we are seeking different things and pursuing different strategies, but also in terms of the practice of what to actually do together on this geoeconomic policy issue, given that we have different goals and different strategies. And when I start to think about what precisely Washington and Canberra could be doing on this issue, I tend to think that the first one is kind of the obvious one, which is already happening to an extent, and that is talking much more together from the same song sheet, so to speak. And this fits in with what has emerged as one of the concerted parts of Australia's broad response to China's economic coercion, and that is the diplomatic effort to effectively name and shame Beijing, to raise awareness about economic coercion, to ensure that references to the rules-based trading regime are inserted into a whole host of bilateral and multilateral communiques, and to ensure that there is kind of a, a coalition of countries that are similarly concerned about China's economic statecraft and similarly critical of China's economic statecraft, though it's never mentioned explicitly that it's China that we're talking about, but everyone is clear on that issue. And the United States can play a significant role in that in partnership with Australia and a whole host of other allies and partners, whether it be Japan, New Zealand, France, and potentially countries like India as well. I think that's good and right and useful. I do wonder ultimately what the payoff of that naming and shaming will be though, in that it strikes me that Beijing has very limited inclination to change its policies in response to international diplomatic pressure and naming and shaming. And what is taking place in places like Hong Kong or Xinjiang is testament to that. But, and I think maybe this is the more substantive point here, beyond those elements of diplomatic co uh, coordination that we might see between Washington and Canberra and other capitals, the Australian government seems to be charging forward with an approach of speaking together on this issue of economic coercion, but essentially acting alone. And this is going to the Australian Trade Minister's recent speech on Australia's economic statecraft, which is quite a remarkable speech. And it highlights that Australia is effectively not seeking to collaborate extensively on this issue. And the Trade Minister made plain that the, the focus is on three key Ps, principled, proactive, and patient. So principled in support of the rules-based trading system, continuing with supporting that, pursuing new economic opportunities for Australia via that trading system, proactive in seeking to diversify Australian exports to a range of markets in response to being shut out of the Chinese market, and patient in seeking to not be overly adversarial towards China and seeking to have Chinese ministers pick up the phone and continue to engage with Australia. And that kind of broad approach to economic statecraft doesn't necessarily leave a great deal of room for strong cooperation and coordination between Washington and Canberra. And I'll leave it finally with one point that I think if you were looking at what Washington can do based on extant Australian policies towards 
China's economic coercion and economic statecraft more broadly, there are probably three big things that would scream out. One would be CPTPP, one would be the United States being more engaged in the WTO and more supportive, and one would be uh, a rollback of the Trump tariffs. But as we all know, big picture policy changes in DC like these are incredibly domestically complex and seemingly unlikely given the statements we've had of late. So it kind of leaves us in an impasse, in my view, beyond the ongoing diplomatic support. Or if it's not an impasse, at the very least, the ball is to a significant extent within the court of domestic US politics. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. So um, before we go into the Q&A, I thought it would be good just to hear from Stephen and, and hear, do you have any response to the comments from Christine and Ben? I think overall there was probably um, a degree of consensus among the panel sort of on the limitations of geoeconomic statecraft side of the ledger, but it would be great to hear your thoughts, Stephen. I'll pick up on a couple of points from both Christine uh, and Ben. Um, Christine mentioned the magnitude of the positive supply shock that we saw from China's uh, reintegration into the global economy. Uh, and in fact, it was even bigger than the reintegration of China because of course we've also had uh, Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union being brought into the world economy at broadly the same time. And so this was a massive shock to the global labor market in particular. Um, and my take on this is that it's actually remarkable that the dislocation wasn't even more dramatic than it was given uh, the magnitude of that positive uh, labor supply shock. Um, in, in many ways, I think the, the US uh, characteristically adjusted very well to that shock, but of course, you know, the adjustment was um, far from perfect and certainly had uh, resulted in a lot of uh, dislocation uh, in the US labor market. Uh, and I think that goes to the other issue around China's WTO accession, which uh, if you look at what you know, an offensive realist like John Mearsheimer would say about that, uh, Mearsheimer would say, well, this was a huge strategic blunder on the United States to uh, facilitate China's entry into the WTO because a China that was rising economically would not be a status quo power. Uh, and I think this raises uh, some very profound issues about um, the nature of China's involvement in the WTO. I think it's very hard to point to plausible counterfactuals in which China was left out of the world economy um, and yet the US ends up being economically and strategically better off. Uh, and in fact, I think it's worth recalling that you know, China probably caused as much trouble for the United States internationally you know, in the 1950s and 60s when it was you know, an inwardly focused economy uh, as it has uh, more recently. I think the big mistake that was made in respect of China's WTO accession was really uh, a collective failure on the part of Western powers to hold China's feet to the fire in terms of the commitments that they made uh, as part of that accession. Uh, and so when it, we're now very belatedly trying to throw the international rulebook at China, um, having failed to do so as aggressively as, as could have been done uh, in the past. Um, and this is occurring at the same time that uh, Chinese policymakers uh, are taking an inward turn 
uh, away from the reform orientation that we saw uh, in previous decades. Um, to Ben's point about the role of geoeconomics in the alliance, uh, we shouldn't forget, of course, that the ANZUS Treaty is a security treaty. And if we go back to the text of the, the ANZUS Treaty uh, from 1951, it is completely silent on economic issues. And so I think what is uh, causing problems for Australian and US policymakers is that for the first time, they're having to bring economic issues into that security alliance and into that security framing. Uh, and I think they're still working through how that's going to take place. Uh, you will have seen that Prime Minister Scott Morrison not so long ago proposed uh, an economic Osmian. So just as we bring the Australian and US uh, foreign and defence ministers together for annual ministerial consultations, Morrison's proposal was that we should be doing the same on the economic side. Um, but I think you can imagine that if you took a proposition to the US Treasury Secretary that he had to front a meeting with his Australian counterpart to address a range of economic issues, there would be a certain amount of reluctance, uh, if only because of uh, competing uh, priorities. Um, so I think in many ways, the idea of an economic Osman is sort of a litmus test of um, the way in which the Alliance can bring economic issues uh, into uh, a security uh, perspective. So for all the reasons Ben talked about, I think this is gonna be a tough ask because uh, as Ben indicated, I don't think the US administration uh, itself has a clear view of where it wants to go on a lot of geoeconomic issues and in terms of its strategy for uh, confronting China. I think there are people within the administration, for example, who have probably uh, given up on the multilateral trading system. Uh, there are others who want to continue to see the US play a leadership role in that system. Uh, and of course, you have all these domestic economic priorities cutting right across uh, US international economic policy at the same time. So I think this will be an issue just within the US government in terms of coordinating uh, on these policy issues. I, I don't think US domestic policy and international economic policy at the moment are very well integrated uh, and not very well coordinated. Uh, I think this is very apparent in USTR Ty's speech uh, the other day, which was probably something of a holding action on her part while the administration you know, sorts through many of these issues, uh, it had all the hallmarks of being a placeholder uh, speech. Um, but in that speech, you see uh, fairly minimal recognition of the role of uh, US allies in giving effect to uh, the international economic strategy of the United States. And I think you see this across a, a range of policy areas on the part of the US government. So for example, the Biden administration's 100-day uh, supply chain review, uh, where you would think there was considerable scope to talk up the prospects for cooperation with allies on supply chain security. Uh, and in fact, what you find is uh, uh, barely a paragraph referring to cooperation with allies, sort of making all the right noises, but really not knowing where to go with that particular idea. Um, 
if you look at some of the signature pieces of legislation on the part of the Obama administration, so the, the big uh, industry and technology uh, innovation uh, legislation, um, that legislation is loaded up with lots of measures relating to domestic economic objectives. Uh, so for example, uh, supporting uh, the regions of the United States, uh, supporting economic diversity, um, these are all hallmarks of an administration which even in its conduct of international economic policy is very much distracted by uh, domestic economic objectives. So I think these are all very important constraints on the role of the United States uh, and its potential to cooperate with Australia uh, on geoeconomic issues. Thanks, Stephen. Um, that is a great segue to the first question which I wanted to ask, which is to Christine. Um, it would be great to get your views, Christine, on the direction of travel from the Biden administration in terms of international economic policy. Um, what is your take on USTR Catherine Tai's speech and what should an ally like Australia expect for the rest of the Biden administration's term in terms of international economic policy on these questions? Of, of geoeconomics and relationship with China? Yeah, so that's a great question. Ambassador Tai actually had two recent speeches. Um, perhaps you're referring to the, mo the most recent one on WTO, but then uh, just a couple weeks ago, you know, her uh, talk at CSIS and China was also uh, quite remarkable. And I think they go together. Um, I guess one point I'm, uh, you know, and I, and I was, I did go back to her remarks on WTO and I actually took away something a little different, I guess, than you said. I mean, I, I actually took away from that, yes, a, a little bit of a placeholder, but also uh, a real underscoring of working with others. I mean, she did say, um, we're, we have new challenges and we are gonna have to work together to sort them out, right? And, <laughs> It was, in a way, that the remarks were extremely frustrating because they were so vague, right? Um, but I read them a few times, uh, and you know, and I, you kind of get the sense that they're looking to, they're looking at the, into the future. They're they're seeing that the challenges that we 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 the collective we are, have to to deal with uh, probably are beyond the WTO. Um, and hence, we do need to work it out um, together. Hence the, you know, maritime, uh, the working with Australia and others on maritime freedom. Um, you know, the, um, the, the rhetoric in the, from the Biden administration on trade and international economic policy, very different than the Trump administration's, but the, the trade policy itself, not so different, right? Um, and, you know, and, and you could argue with, you know, yes, that matters, no, it doesn't matter. I would argue it on, on the margin, it does matter because, you know, these are relationships and, you know, between countries, but there are human beings there. And, you know, that harsh rhetoric out of the Trump administration, I think, you know, kind of did take a bit of a toll on everyone. Um, and so it is a nice um, pivot uh, with this administration to get back to the wanting to work together. Um, and yes, yes, we're, you know, they still have kept the Trump tariffs, much to many of our chagrin, but, you know, also 
for instance, look at um, transatlantic ties. Okay, we're probably not going to do TTIP anytime soon. Although, you know, would we ever be able to reach any agreement uh, with the EU on ag? Um, so getting more realistic, uh, and frankly, more to the point, you know, the, the, tech, the Trade and Technology Council, I would argue, is much more important um, and is the, the, the more important segment of TTIP anyway. So let's be realistic and pragmatic. Forget ag. Um, you know, let's focus on what is at hand um, and where we don't need, you know, all of the, um, the elements of our, of our political capital to come together. Um, you know, let's just find the common ground and really just do a few things well. Um, and I would, I would say that's what the Biden administration is doing with Europe on, on the Trade and Technology Council. I, I would say that's what they're doing with Australia and the UK on pursuing maritime freedom. Uh, so yeah, look, I mean, it's not, you know, not, not necessarily getting back to TPP, um, but maybe, I don't know, maybe they've moved on. I mean, sometimes I, I hear US officials talk about the CPTPP almost in a way like, you know, it's almost like a, a, a yesteryear kind of thing, which kind of makes me sad um, because, you know, it was such an important, uh, remember the P4? I mean, that was such an important, uh, we had such high hopes for the, the TBP, uh, really uh, like, you know, carving out a set of countries to redefine um, and, and strengthen the rules on subsidies. If we can't do it in the WTO, let's do it at least among countries that agree and then whoever wants to join in later, including China, as long as they could meet those standards, yes, please, well, you know, welcome in. Um, I don't know if that ship has sailed or not. Um, I, but I'm started. I've recently come around to thinking possibly has. Um, but, um, but you never know. I mean, it's, you just you know, you never really know. Um, the uh, but look at I think on trade and climate with um, WTO Director General Ngozi, uh, her piece in the Financial Times the other day calling on World Bank, WTO, OECD, and IMF to work together, come up with a solution on a global carbon price. I think that was really, had a lot of foresight getting ahead of this issue on the EU's um, carbon pricing strategy um, and um, carbon border adjustment mechanism, which, um, I, which as Stephen hinted at in terms of the US um, steel industry and other dark sides of, of US trade policy forces on K Street, um, you know, they'll be all too eager to, to define the EU's um, carbon border adjustment mechanism um, as a subsidy. And if they do that, then we'll see a lot more countervailing duty cases against Europe, Europe will retaliate, and then we have a transatlantic trade war. So, um, so I think that was really, really quite brilliant of Ngozi to call on these international institutions, which, you know, in, in principle, that's where all, all of the world's, you know, economists come together and sort, try to figure these things out. And I would hope that Australia and the US and others, you know, really put their best foot forward, throw their best economists in the mix to, um, to figure this out because otherwise it really, it could end up, um, you know, as everybody um, for each for their own. And, you know, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna define your, um, carbon pricing scheme as a subsidy, you'll define mine as one, and then we're in another trading war, which is completely, you know, misses the whole point. Um, but these are the kinds of things, you know, probably beyond outside the WTO framework, but um, but it was really, I thought, real, quite brilliant of Ngozi to call on the, um, the relevant agencies to, um, to work this out. 
to stave off you know, potential uh, trade problems in the future. Thank you. I thought I might direct a question to, to Ben, which is really on the, the China aspect of these questions. And one of the things that Stephen's report does really nicely is he puts in context sort of the degree to which China's economic coercion is, is a challenge that we need to be reorienting our economic policy to address. Um, and I'd be interested in your views, Ben, on, on that question, sort of the threshold question of just how much of a challenge to Australia is the economic coercion from China um, and given the limits of the alliance as a geoeconomic construct that we've been discussing, what does it look like for Australia if we are essentially going it alone? Thanks for that, Susanna. I think that's a critical question. And I think it was actually a point that you once made on Twitter, which was that so many of these big geoeconomic, geostrategic questions, when it comes to debating what the appropriate response is, it comes down to a question of, the extent of the threat posed by Beijing and policymakers within the CCP. And I think this example of geoeconomic policy responding to China's economic coercion specifically, but also China's economic statecraft more broadly, again, the way in which one ought to respond to that will be to a huge degree informed by the extent to which you see China's economic statecraft and economic coercion as a threat. Because there is, in these kinds of debates, the risk of setting off unhelpful escalatory cycles, not dissimilar to the cycles that Christine is talking about, where if you have China pursuing economic coercion, seeking to pressure other countries to pursue policy objectives that align with its interests, and then in response to that, you have some kind of coordinated counter coercion campaign, without necessarily saying that's the wrong response, we have to contend with the fact that that kind of counter coercive measure could very easily lead China to double down and just lead to spiraling coercion and counter coercion, which would leave everyone presumably economically worse off and perhaps worst of all, may stand very little chance of actually shifting the policy dial in Beijing. And I think that's one of the key difficulties to grapple with that Beijing on this particular issue seems relatively immune to outside suggestions and pressure. In terms of what in terms of the, the particular threat posed by China's economic statecraft to Australia, I think in the immediate wake of the barrage of trade restrictions being imposed, first in May of 2020, and then over the course of 2020, and being maintained to 2021, there was this kind of initial political and diplomatic shock in that it's quite a dramatic development to have Australian exporters coerced and have Beijing seek to shift policy in Canberra via this really brunt, blunt instrument of trade restrictions. And that was really chastening for Australia. And I think, understandably, there was this kind of knee-jerk response of, this is terrible, what are we going to do? We need to respond. And only as the trade data comes through and as Australian exporters are able to slowly but surely redirect to other markets, we see that Although there is an initial period of dislocation and economic pain, which is really tough to grapple with and should not be discounted and ha has affected certain communities and certain exporters disproportionately in Australia, overall, Australian exporters have been really effective at redirecting their exports to alternative markets, whether it be in the Middle East, in South Asia, in Southeast Asia, in Europe and elsewhere. And 
for the most part, the trade disruption has been in the initial phase of the trade disruption and dealing with losing the premium associated with access to the Chinese market. And there may be some Australian exporters which are more deeply affected. So for example, certain premium Australian wines, which were specifically designed for the Chinese market and which can't readily find alternative markets. But by and large, over time, it appears that the economic fallout is relatively modest or at least much less significant than was initially predicted. I think one warning that I'll end on is that with respect to the Australian exports that have been hit so far, primarily they are commodities and goods that can be relatively easily redirected because in many cases they're fungible and you can send them to any market. But there is the prospect as COVID recedes to a certain extent and as borders reopen to a certain extent that Australian education and tourism will be the next targets for China's economic coercion. And it's much harder to redirect Australian exports of tourism and education given that there's much longer lead time in building up those markets. And so there's the prospect of much more disruption and much more difficulty in store for Australia should China choose to pull the trigger on tourism and education, which it hasn't done so yet. Thank you. Well, that pretty much brings us to the end of the hour, but I thought, Stephen, I'll give you the chance to quickly respond to, to any of what's been said and offer your, your closing thoughts before we wrap up today's event. Yeah, it might just be worth quickly uh, revisiting the vexed issue of US involvement in CPTPP. I think part of what has to happen here is it needs to be called something else. Um, and there's ample precedent for that in terms of the history of that agreement and that it does change its name uh, at various uh, points in its life, reflecting new members coming in. Um, so I think it is possible to re-engage the United States um, with that uh, regional trade architecture. Uh, the other suggestion I'd make here would be that we should probably call China's bluff on its application for membership. Uh, alongside that of Taiwan, uh, because the agreement very cleverly anticipates a Chinese membership bid. It includes a lot of chapters, for example, a chapter on SOEs that was really put in there specifically with China in mind and contains a lot of disciplines which, you know, we should invite China to sign up to. And of course, uh, if we are running a beauty contest between China and Taiwan, I think it's pretty clear who would win that contest. And bringing uh, Taiwan into the agreement, I think, underscores its role uh, as a geoeconomic counterweight to China's uh, regional economic influence. Uh, so in terms of China's membership bid, I, I would say uh, bring it on, but uh, with a view to an outcome probably quite different from the one uh, China might expect. Thank you. That's great. And I think it just underscores the point, Christine, you mentioned it's it's sad if the TPP is being discussed as something from yesteryear in, in Washington. Uh, so that, that brings us to the end of the event. Thank you very much to our panellists, Stephen Kirshner, Christine McDaniel and Benjamin Herskovich. Um, I'll just mention one upcoming event from the US Studies Centre together with the Asia Society on uh, Thursday at, at 10 a.m., which is um, a discussion on the President Biden's Indo-Pacific strategy, the state of play, which should be a great discussion. Thank you very much for your attendance at this morning webinar.